You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. In today's show, you'll be hearing from Broker with uh, Sprock Global, Sam Broom. Every six months, we check in with Sam for the last few years. If you're looking for a full-service broker, I would recommend uh, speaking with Sam, and I'll put his uh, information, his contact information in the show notes below. Welcome back onto the show, Sam. It's been about six months, and you are from New Zealand originally, and you've worked and lived in Australia, so you follow those markets more than uh, a lot of my North American listeners. So bring us up to speed. What's been going on the last six months uh, in regards to ASX gold producers relative to their North American peers? Yeah, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me on again. Um, those that have been listening to me for, you know, on these podcasts over the years will know I've long been a fan of the, the Australian sector in general. And it's, you know, I would I would argue the Australian sector is going through a, a very golden period for its mining industry. There's been a lot of success stories there's a lot of really high quality management teams in that whole space right now. So I'm a big fan. I know that view is echoed internally at Sprott. Um, that resulted in a period of, you know, four or five years where the Australian gold sector significantly outperformed the rest of the global market from about mid 2014 through until about mid 2019. I was going to say last year. It's uh, two years ago now. Um, you know, where there was an exceptional outperformance. We're talking, you know, crazy, you know, multi-hundred percent outperformance if you look at the whole, the, the market as a whole. Um, that stopped in its tracks in terms of its relative outperformance around about when we saw this kind of new bull market of in precious metals, if that's what we want to call it, um, sort of mid-2019, June, July. Um, and the reason for that, well, there are a whole lot of reasons for that, but the prime reason is that when you when you you sort of transition from a sort of flat to bearish market into a bullish market, all of a sudden, you know, leverage becomes your friend. And there are multiple types of leverage. There's you know operating leverage. So you know, all of a sudden, these higher cost producers that were sort of barely making any money or losing money are making bucket loads of money as the gold price rises and they go from being completely beat up and potential, you know, in some cases, potential, you know, bankruptcy type cases to looking like superstars and you get these, this giant outperformance. Um, and so we saw a period of time where um, the North American names in particular, which tended to have more operational leverage, they tended to be on average. And again, there are lots of exceptions to the rule, but, tended to be higher cost producers and tended to have significantly higher um, levered balance sheets, a lot more debt on the balance sheets. Those guys started looking like superstars and started really outperforming. We saw some, some major outperformance from the, the North American names. Um, one, one chart I like to, to look at just for, you know, I'm, I'm at interest sake, I, I like looking at relative performance between all sorts of different categories of asset classes and within asset classes. Um, I'll send you a chart um, of the Australian All Ordinaries Gold Index, which is, you know, basically the Australian index versus um, the GDX as a proxy for the for the rest of the market. And obviously, the GDX does include Australian names too, but it's it's definitely heavier in, in the North American names. And you'll see that see exactly what I said. And in, in in for that sort of four or five year period, you'll see the chart going from bottom left to top right. Is that Australian market? 
massively outperformed. And then about a year and a half ago, you'll see it really dip down um, as, as those sort of levered plays started to, to, to really shine. Um, the Australian sector really sort of plateaued and, and, and then declined much earlier last year towards Q, sort of Q2, Q3 um, compared to the GDX. And we saw a period where it really underperformed. Here at Sprott, we've noticed that's kind of a fairly reliable seasonal trend. Um, it's happened more years than, than not. Um, and so we we often, you know, look to if there's anything that's significantly overvalued on the Australian side, sort of, sort of just before the summer, around the summer, we, you know, we, we often look to trim a little bit of Aussie exposure and then look to buy it back right about now, sort of end of the year, January, where that, that seasonal trend starts to kick in. So that's one reason why we're particularly interested in the, the Aussie space now. Um, and two, it just it went from being sort of the more expensive, op, you know, portion of the market sort of a year ago to now, you know, we view it as as the cheapest part of the market as well as being the higher, highest quality when you look at things like free cash flow yields. And, you know, it, it, there, there's always ways, you know, valuations are, you know, the beauties in the eye of the beholder in, in many ways. There are many ways to look at valuation. Um, but in the ways, you know, in, in, the, in the metrics that we care about or care about the most, you know, the Aussie market is definitely back looking the most attractive right now. Um, again, there's obviously individual, you know, exceptions to the rule. Um, but by and large, that's been an area of focus of us, of ours in the last month or two. So have you been steering a lot of your North American clients to invest in this market? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I've got a few clients in mind listening now. Chances are, if you're listening, you, you've probably got a fairly heavy weighting or, or, an, or an over allocation relative to its market size within the market um, of Australian, particularly Australian producers. Um, there's a, you know, obviously I can't mention specific names for compliance reasons, but they're, in our view, the sort of mid cap through to sort of small large, large caps in the Australian space on average are, are very, very high quality. Um, so clients that want that sort of high quality producer, sort of especially in the mid cap space, you know, you, a lot of my clients have a big weight into that section. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of wholesale rotating in and out of, of various asset classes. So unless something fundamentally changes with these companies, I'm I'm unlikely to recommend my clients dump them all and buy them back later or things like that. But you can sort of trade a little bit around your core positions. Um, and then, you know, particularly if things get way out of whack, trim some major winners and look to buy them back later and things like that. So that's it's more trimming and, and tinkering around the edges because by and large, I, I, you know, there's, there's such high quality that I want to hold, hold for long haul most of these ultra high quality Australian companies. Do you have an ex- exit strategy already in place in terms of a gold price? Uh, you know, how are you judging that at this point in the cycle? You know, I think we're just too early in the cycle to worry about that. Um, I, you know, people say, oh, do you have gold price targets? I think, it, personally, I think it's a fool's game trying to make those kind of predictions. There is so much, you know, as gold bugs, and I'm sure you hear it, you know, all the, all the podcasts like your own, and, you know, there's so much crazy whack stuff going on in the world right now that it's really impossible to know where this trade is going to go. Or I don't view it as a trade. Where this, where this investment is, is going to go, where gold is going to go in the long haul, how long it's going to take. Uh, I'm fairly certain that we are, you know, 
we've got a long way to run. So as long as I'm feeling, you know, and as we as an organisation feel there's a long way to run, I'm not going to even worry about the the exit point. In my opinion, it's likely years away. You know, I'm not here worried that we're hitting the top of the market. So when I start having those worries, perhaps I'll start thinking more about that. But for the time being, it's it's not a major concern of mine. Dore Copper Mining is a premier, near-term, high-grade copper and gold redevelopment opportunity with tremendous exploration potential only 14 kilometers from the town of Shibugamu in mine-friendly Quebec. Dore Copper is debt-free and owns a 2,700-ton-per-day mill with an 8-million-ton tailings facility ready to be used. There is already power to site and it is accessible by paved highway and rail. Dore Copper aims to produce a profitable hub-and-spoke operation of over 100,000 gold equivalent ounces per year or over 60 million pounds of copper equivalent by 2024. Because of the existing infrastructure and location, a low capex is anticipated to recommence production. Dore Copper trades under DCMC in Toronto and under DRCMF on the OTC. To learn more, go to DoreCopper.com. That's DoreCopper.com. Outside the precious metals, what commodities have your eyes for 2021? Yeah, so I mean, as you know, I've been a big fan of the base metals for, for a very long time and 2020 showed you exactly why it's worthwhile having a diverse or at least moderately diverse portfolio, especially in the metal space, you know, especially the second half of 2020 where the, the precious metals took a big breather. You know, we saw things like copper, you know, really, really take off. And I mean, it's a, it's a classic example of why the, you have to diversify even despite your brain telling you that, you know, all be in one thing. I mean, I, I'll be the first to admit that in the depths of the March, <laughs> the March despair, if you told me that in nine months' time, copper would be at multi-year highs, you know, I would have, I would have laughed at you probably. But despite that, I still held, you know, my high-conviction, high high-quality copper names in my portfolio because picking the timing on these things, even, you know, myself working for an organisation like Sprott where this is where we do, this is what we do and it's all we do all day long. You know, it's very, very hard to pick these things. So, um, so we're still bullish on on base metals, but they're probably you know things like copper have had a good run. So, in terms of out and out value, you know that trade has kind of happened, and and I do think it's going to go much higher in the long run. But in, in the very immediate term, one sector we're starting to look at a lot more is the oil and gas sector. That really is the contrarian sector right now for those that like that sort of thing you know everyone's different some people like momentum and and, and sectors that are moving um some prefer to play the contrarian game and buy what's obviously cheap and burn, burned out you know there's, there's very little doubt that that's oil and gas in, in the energy space in general right now um you know i i often find a little weird sort of marquee moments like for example Exxon Mobil getting booted from the S&P 500 you know for those unaware the turn of the last decade in 2010 it was one of the top five top 10 largest companies by way of market cap in the world <laughs> so to go from that to being booted out of the S&P 500 is about as contrarian of a signal as you you can get you know you look on all these magazine covers saying the death of oil and uh, you know whenever I see those sorts of things the contrarian in me gets um a little bit excited. Um, I, I have never really owned energy or oil stocks before in my life. It's not a it's not a sector that I'm personally um, as well um, knowledgeable about. You know, I spent most of my time as in my geology life before working for Sprott in, in the metal space, particularly 
um, you know, precious metals and, and the iron ore space back in Aussie. Uh, but the setup is that compelling for those with a patient long-term, you know, outlook and the ability to weather a lot of volatility along the way. I think there's, there's so much beta on offer just from owning a, you know, a broad, diverse, you know, basket of oil plays um, that you don't have to get too cute, you know. You do have to be prepared to hold, though, because, it, you know, these things can and often do take far longer than you expect. Um, any, you know, precious metals <laughs> investors watching this will know that well. Um, but that's probably the most conservative, or sorry, the most contrarian place that we're interested in right now. Don't you think um, oil and LNG have left the station though? Because I mean, oil has been performing good recently and LNG in Asia, the chart kind of looked parabolic when I looked at it just recently. Yeah, I mean, people say that and then and you've definitely missed the absolute low. If Well, I shouldn't say definitely, who knows what can happen, but chances are you've missed the absolute low. Um, but if you look at the, the you know the the producers and the you know the services companies and you know the whole sector as a whole, you look at you bring up a chart going back 10, 15 years, you know you you can barely see the rise we've seen. You know it's it's it's, it's all about perspective. It's all about perspective. You know if you're worried about what's going to happen in the next week or two, would I be rushing out to buy it? If I didn't have any exposure, I probably still would. Um, but if I was already you know. If, if you've got a long, long time horizon, you know, I think there's very little doubt that you've missed the boat. So, and that's the way I like to think. And that's the way we at Sprock, you know, we're not too worried about the day to day, week to week, or even month to month. We're kind of looking multiple years out and, and where's the risk reward. So, so there's, there's the energy space. And then one other I wanted to mention was, was um, the agricultural space. And again, I've got a chart for you, you know, the, the DBA index. Um, you know, broad basket of commodities um, threatening to break out of a 10-year downtrend. Um, you know, when that goes, that's going to be a very, very powerful trend. It's going to influence a whole lot of things from inflation expectations to, you know, it's going to affect real people, you know, people buying, people's grocery bills going up. It's about the, the biggest shock to the system in terms of real felt inflation in the, in the broad economy. So that's what I'm keeping a really close eye on. It's a very hard one to play. Um, you know, we've got a we've got some options. You know, we've got a really nice uh, farmland fund as a private fund um, that I like. Um, but there are there are some other there are some commodity producers, fertilizer um, fertilizer plays, and there's just a couple of really high quality ways to play that angle. Um, it is so it is hard to gain exposure to, but in terms of sort of alternative asset inflation protection type of exposure that is an area that i think again that's very contrarian like the oil and gas space that i think you know investors looking for inflation protection and an alternative sort of bucket within their portfolio should should have on their radar at least so Trilogy Metals is a world-class developer in Alaska's Ambler Mining District. The company already possesses 8 billion pounds of high-grade copper, 3 billion pounds of zinc, over 1 million gold-equivalent ounces, and over 77 million pounds of cobalt. Trilogy's Arctic project boasts an after-tax net present value of $1.4 billion with a 33% internal rate of return. Trilogy is led by an experienced management team with proven success in discovering and developing projects in Alaska. The company is well-capitalized 
capitalized, has no debt, and possesses strong institutional support. Trilogy trades in New York and Toronto under the ticker TMQ. To learn more, go to TrilogyMetals.com. That's TrilogyMetals.com. The flip side of opportunity is risk. So what are your key risks for this year? Um, you know, for me, the biggest risk, the thing that keeps me up at night is just the generic or the, the broad level of craziness everywhere. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't have to, you know, everyone talks about Tesla and, you know, tech, tech stock, you know, price to sales ratios. And, and you know, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that we're in some sort of crazy everything bubble right now. Um, so that, that to me is the biggest risk because when that deflates, and it will deflate, there's no doubt about that, um, at least in my mind, you know, you're going to have monster liquidity events. And, you know, we had a pretty massive one back last year in March. You know, chances of that happening, whether it's that magnitude or not, who knows. But we will have that type of thing again. And we know that the way the market is structured these days, when volatility hits, it hits rapidly and intensely. You know, it's not like back in the 30s where you have this sort of multi-year, you know, down the, down the escalator. It's like, you know, you get walloped in the face, and all the all the negative feedback loops start feeding on each other, and it all happens in days, weeks, rather than months and years. So you need to be prepared for that. Um, you know, there are various ways you can be prepared for that. Um, what I always like to tell my clients is, knowing you're in ultra high quality investments gives you peace of mind that when they get beaten up for no apparent reason other than a liquidity crunch. You know, you can sleep at night knowing you own quality and it's going to come back. You know, if you don't know what you own and you're sort of second guessing yourself, and, oh, do I own a bunch of crap? And, you know, this is when the tide comes out and going to get screwed and it's never going to come back. If you don't have those worries in the back of your mind, you can be firm and, and hold or even use the volatility as your friend if you've got cash available to, to buy more. Um, that's something I want to get better at. You know, this, this is what Mark just has taught me um, is, you know, when things go, when, when things get absurd, which they did in in March. There's no other, no better way to describe it, in my opinion. Um, you know, having the having the testicular fortitude to go out and buy absolutely tier one high quality names that are trading at absurd valuations is something that everyone needs to try and get better at doing, myself included. So, you know, that's that's probably my biggest takeaway for 2020. Um, and I think I will be better at it next time around, you know, because I'll be the first one to admit that middle of March, you know, was I loading up the, the till at the absolute nose? No, I was, you know, I was sitting around going, what the heck is going on just like everyone else? Um, thankfully, I, you know, I was able to, both for myself and clients, pick up some just ultra high quality, both speculative names, you know, high quality producers that were, were down, you know, 60, 70, 80% in some cases for no apparent reason. Other than just liquidity, and now they're up three, four hundred percent since then. And now they're up, you know. And these are these are five hundred million to multi-billion dollar companies, and you, you're sitting there with the techs, the BHPs, the Valets, those. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, you people don't people people. That's that's one fallacy that I hear a lot is clients saying, "Oh, look, I I don't want these big producers. They don't give me enough upside." Well, I'm telling you, you can get junior mining speculative type upside if you have the ability and the, the sort of, again, the intestinal fortitude to buy these those sorts of companies when they're really, really silly 
in terms of, you know, for whatever reason. Um, and usually it's nothing to do with fundamentals whatsoever. It's just a big slosh out of liquidity. Um, so that's something I – that's a risk for, for 2021. Um, but it's also going to be your biggest opportunity if it does happen. So, you know, again, this is a rocket scientist, but probability of it happening. Can you give us a percent based on your, or is it just a shot in the dark? Cause I've heard people say, yes, we're going to, you know, we're going to see it again, probably this year, uh, could be fueled by the political, uh, crisis or a contention, you know, I mean, there's a lot of takes on what could happen, but, do you have any probability you could lay out of, of it happening? I mean, again, you know, I think postulating on that sort of probability is, you know, it's, it's, it's a fun game, but I, you know, I think it's, you know, it's, it's not all that useful. Um, if I, if you fought, if you twisted my arm and said, you know, pull a probability out for me, you know, I would say it's probably greater than 50%. Um, that we see some sort of volatility event. And by that, I mean maybe a 20% plus drawdown in a matter of weeks in the S&P 500, which will you know, flow on to what we do as well, almost certainly. Um, you know, I think the chance of another you know, the event where we see the GDXJ drop almost, what was it, over 60% two and a half weeks is, is much lower than that. I think that was a kind of an event for, for a decade, you know, once a decade type or even more than that type event. Um, but I think the chance of a very swift 20% kick to the nuts type of thing is, is, is more than 50%. Um, but, you know, who knows? I mean, we just saw Grantham today. I don't know if you saw a piece come out from him, but, you know, I was reading through that, and he's had a pretty decent track record at picking bubble tops. And he was talking about, you know, this may last another few weeks to maybe months, you know, um, thinking. So in his mind, you know, he thinks that another big massive crash is imminent. Um, I'm not going to go out on a limb and predict that. I'm not, it's beyond my pay grade, and uh, you know I'm not smart enough to figure out the, the broader, major macro, you know, wanderings. But and, and frankly, I think the I have a fairly strong view that the global macroeconomic system is just so incredibly complex. It is literally the definition of a complex system that and there are so many little butterfly effects that you just can't figure out the flow on effects of these, these things that it's very, very hard to pick, you know, and, and that's why I'm not a huge fan of absolute, you know, postulating on timeframes and probabilities. Cause I think, I don't think that's, that's a useful. CM, I did an interview uh, with a fund manager recently about Lithium Americas Corp. And uh, this was at the end of December. And from about December 21st until now, so that's about two weeks, this stock on the New York Stock Exchange has gone up 60%. And so that's quite explosive action in two weeks for a stock on the New York Stock Exchange. Any commentary you can provide here? And what's your general take on lithium stocks? I'll have to refrain from um, commenting about, you know, individual companies. Um, I I do get asked about the more niche, you know, commodities. You know, I I would put lithium kind of in the niche basket. It's not, it's probably moving beyond the the really niche commodities these days. And I will say that we are definitely somewhat interested in lithium. Again, I, there are some really high quality ways to play it that aren't junior mining companies. And that's the way that I tend to prefer to gain exposure to it for my clients. Um, but, but again, 
there are, there, you, there are plenty of options out there, and it is it is a contrarian bet right now. In terms of the you know the very niche commodities, you know the rare earths and things like that, um, I generally try and you know talk clients away from getting too heavy into that sort of thing. The reason being is there's just so much crap out there. Very very few of them are any have real fundamental value, and it becomes a sort of game playing greater full theory type of type of trade where you know you're in it because of a narrative and you know all the stocks are going to go up and you think you're smarter than everyone else in terms of running for the exit and getting out before the music stops. Um, that's not to say there isn't fundamental reasons to own them. You know, the whole security of supply on the rare earth angle is real. You know, the vast, vast majority of all rare earths are produced out of China and everyone knows that China and the West are having a bit of a spat these days and there is very real you know, I guess you could say national security concerns surrounding that. And that's obviously what's driving things like rare earths these days. Um, but the market is there's just, for me, there's not enough high quality companies out there that I'd be willing to put my capital in and therefore my clients in for the long haul, you know, outside of those clients that are desperate for speculation. And this is precisely what they want to do. And they're, they're willing to accept the risks that, you know, the risks are very high and, and they are aware that they're playing a game rather than sort of investing for the, uh, you know, on a fundamental basis. So, and w- Would another adverse reason be the fact that you're not going to have as much institutional money coming into these niche sectors versus a cop- copper, gold, uranium? So you're basically, you know, you're looking for the momentum retail players to sell at at some point in the future. And if they don't come in, you're doomed. Exactly, yeah, and that, that tends to mean they're fairly liquid, you know. And, and for me, as a as an asset manager with you know bigger book to to move in and out of things, it just it gets impossible, and I don't want to take that risk or subject my clients to that risk. Um, and you are you're right, you're just you're at the whims of the retail market and whatever the hot flashy thing is today, you know. And that that'll be these little niche commodities for for a few months or a few weeks or six months to a year maybe. Um, but when the tide goes out, it goes out fairly ferociously. And, you know, I just think there's a, there's so much opportunity out there in the resource space right now that there are other corners of the resource market I would rather play in right now. Okay. Sam, before you go, for listeners that may be interested in your uh, full brokerage services, just share a little about the type of accounts that you take on. Yeah, so you know we have a range of services running, ranging from fully managed accounts um, through to um, discretionary accounts that I advise on, or sorry, non-discretionary accounts that I advise on, meaning you know basically like the old full service broker type model, um, through to you know a whole range of different private funds. So um, you know minimum investment requirements are typically you know as low as fifty thousand US for fully managed accounts. You know I'm these days, I've got a fairly full book, so I'm you know, accepting new accounts in the non-discretionary advised um, type of account at 200000 US and above. Uh, but anyone that's interested in the mining space and um, investing with the help of, a, of an industry professional to really guide them through their investment process, um, I'd be more than happy to talk with you and, and see if what we do is right for what, what you're doing with your portfolio and... Uh, and if we might be a good fit. 
And Sam, I should also mention, is a geologist. So he's good with the early stage exploration plays and advising people on that. So he's good with the charts, understands the markets, and he is a former geologist. Sam, really appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, we'll be checking up with you in about six months. No worries, Bill. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure as always. 